Hey, welcome back to the weekend edition of Outdoors Live on News Radio, the Mighty 790 KFGO. And I'm your host, Doug Lear. The last shot, the last shot for this weekend edition of Outdoors Live. Uh, we still have a Central Dakota Outdoors report with Pat Stockdale. We're going to get you a podcast extra with Bruin Agri Gone Outdoors, uh, and you can listen to them. You listen to Bruin Agri Gone Outdoors on Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. We know not everybody can listen to them on Saturday mornings. We know not everybody can listen to a podcast. So we break out a podcast extra for you each and every weekend. Before we do that, let's get you a Central Dakota Outdoors report with Pat Stockdale. You read her work in Dakota Country Magazine. She is an award-winning outdoors communicator, and she connects with uh, the people and the places, the bait shops, the gas stations, the motels, the resorts, the guides, to give us a better idea of where people are going, what they're doing, what they're finding outdoors. Well, Pat, what's cooking outdoors this week? Thanks, Doug. Well, this shouldn't be much of a surprise to anyone looking outside, just about anywhere in the great state of North Dakota and the surrounding region, but fishing activity remains light and limited across the area, thanks to Mother Nature's ongoing grip on winter, wind, and snow and the humans and wildlife sharing the area. Devil's Lake continues presenting challenges with snow and slush, making it difficult to move around on the ice, to the point where tracked vehicles aren't immune to getting stuck if venturing off a trail. However, when weather and access allows, anglers are still finding nice perch success on the east end of Devil's Lake. That's really about all that's going on with the exception of a slight awakening of northern pike on some of the back bays along the east end of Lake Sakakwea, areas such as Stanky, Centennial, and Garrison Bays, and further west of Douglas Bay. Try 6 to 12 feet in the upper end of those back bays where there might be a hint of flowing water. The Missouri River tail race is quiet and Lake Audubon is still tough to get around on. But, on a brighter note, spring turkey season is open, not that there would probably be a lot of activity. But, at least it's a nice opportunity for those successful in the lottery license draw, when the weather does warm up. But, for now, at least the birds would certainly show up nicely against the white backdrop of winter. Appreciate that report. That is Pat Stockdale, and she is an award-winning outdoors communicator. Again, Read her work in Dakota Country Magazine and various other publications across the Midwest. Right now, it's time to get you that podcast extra from Scotty Brewer and Kyle Agri. You hear Brewer and Agri gone outdoors at 11 o'clock on Saturday morning. Not everybody can listen then, and not everybody can check out their podcast. So here is a podcast extra from Scotty Brewer and Kyle Agri. We're going to talk a little bit uh, about farmland and habitat with Jeff Miller. Jeff is a director of Cass County Soil Conservation District. Uh, he does a lot of promoting of farmland and of habitat. Uh, he is a very well-known writer. Uh, how are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing pretty good. How are you guys? Doing very well. Excellent. So, like we were just talking off air, I'm not a farmer. So, when I read your last <laughs> article, I thought it was very, very good, very enlightening. Taught me a lot. So let's see if we can teach our listeners a little bit more, too, about, you know, we, we all know that farmland and habitat have a very, very strong connection. If we, want, yep. if we want to wipe out all the habitat with farmland, we certainly can. But there's ways to make it co- cohabitate so that not only is the wildlife going to thrive, but the farm can thrive as well. Yeah, I know, and that's 
that's exactly it. You know, most of the land, especially in North Dakota, is privately owned, and most of it is used for farming and or ranching. And, and you know, farmers and ranchers are making a living on the land, and, and much too often it seems like wildlife groups and farming groups are kind of at odds, and it really doesn't need to be that way because there's some real simple things that, that farmers and ranchers can do to not only, you know, make their bottom line good, but also, you know, maintain or even increase wildlife habitat. You know, and, and I got to believe most farmers and ranchers, uh, you know, they're hunters, they're, they're stewards of the wildlife that are in their area, and they want to see that. So what are some things that they can do uh, that isn't going to affect their ranch negatively, but will very, you know, do huge rewards with, for the wildlife in the area? Yeah, so the... The first thing to do is kind of sit down and look at the property. You know, a lot of farmland, especially in the eastern part of the state, is, is quarter sections or half sections. And and I've been around um, conservation farming long enough to know that that, that whole quarter section is not going to all produce at the same amount. You might have a salty spot. You may have a spot along a slough that drowns out most years. And kind of take a look at those spots and look at places that they could actually quit farming and put it into a perennial grass or trees, you know, because if you're not going to make money on it and you're planting it and putting your fertilizer every year and, and having it not work, you can easily change it to something perennial. And then of course the bottom line needs to be met too. And, and there's uh, a lot of programs out there that, that can assist in that, you know, CRP, um, the equip program with USDA, a lot of the uh, local soil conservation districts, may have programs that can help too, um, with not only the cost of implementation, but, um, uh, uh, yearly payment as well. Hey Jeff, I got a question for you, you know, and I mm-hmm. hear this a lot with, with landowners that have hunting land just for white tailed deer. My, my lot, my farm isn't big enough to really try and manage the deer properly because the deer go all over. It's just not Mm -hmm. big enough to make a difference. I can't believe that's the case here. I mean, anything you can do is going to make a difference. Right. That's just it. You know, I live uh, south of Fargo along the Cheyenne River, and we're kind of in the same situation. None of the neighboring landowners own enough to keep deer on their property year-round. So it's kind of a collective thing. And another really good way that farmers can can really provide habitat is the habitat issue isn't a problem in the summer, the fall, or even the late spring, because we've got crops growing, everything's green. But right now, you talk to ice fishing, if you look out, it's pretty white and desolate. And, you know, those animals still need to live over the winter. And, and um, you know, there's some areas of the state where no-till farming is very popular. No-till farming is where after harvesting the crop, they leave the residue stand. There's no tillage at all. That little bit of residue, depending on what kind of crop you have, really leaves a lot of food out there. And it's not just for deer. You know, I, I was just checking my snare line last week and I was walking across and snowshoeing across a no-till soybean field. And there was all kinds of mice tracks and little critter tracks, which then there's the corresponding predator tracks. And I got into the, to the edge of some spots where the farmer didn't quite harvest everything was a bunch of deer tracks. So it doesn't take a lot of that, that habit. You know, when we think habitat, we think big forests, they're big unbroken um, grasslands and you know even that little bit of stubble left especially in certain areas near existing habitat really really will help the wildlife 
Okay, here's a question, and, and this is just going to show my maybe lack of knowledge. You explained what no-till is really well. Is that a benefit to the to the farmer, the, the person who's working the land, um, or is that something that they're maybe sacrificing to provide that extra cover and food for wildlife? So no-till farming um, is a benefit for the farmer. You know, if you just look at straight numbers, there's less input cost, right? If they go out there and plow in the fall, that's costing diesel fuel, that's costing time, that's, and that's also taking equipment. Um, a lot of the smaller farmers I know have implemented no-till simply because they don't have the manpower or the time to till everything. A lot of the studies have shown that the first couple of years that you segue from tillage to no-till, you may see a slight decrease in crop yields, but after a few years when your soil fertility really comes back, you're going to see an increase and in, in generally are going to produce just as good of crops. And, you know, a lot of times when I was growing up, you'd sit in the co-op and guys would talk about their, their yields in their field, but nobody ever talked about what it costs to put in there. So if you have a high yield, but a high input, at the end of the day, you're still not making much money. Where if you can have a, a pretty good yield with lower inputs, you know, that's going to be more money in the, in the bank at the end of the day. So, and then also, especially if you're a, a a generational farmer, you know, you're, you're conserving your, your topsoil, you know, when the topsoil blows away, it's gone forever. So no-till farming really keeps the topsoil from blowing. This winter, it hasn't been so noticeable. The last couple of winters, you'd be driving around in the, you know, if there wasn't a lot of snow and there was a lot of dirt in the air. When that dirt gets in the air, it, it's gone and it's not coming back. So no-till farming really helps keep that, that, that windy erosion and, and even the water erosion in the spring floods down. So it, it is a benefit to a farmer. It is kind of a different way of thinking. Um, but there is, even in the Red River Valley here, there's a number of farmers that are transitioning to no-till and they're, they're seeing a lot of success. And I got to believe if you want to see a benefit to the wildlife that you may not have to go no-till to 100% of the fields. You know, right. if you do 10% or 20% in no-till, that mm-hmm. there's got to be a huge benefit there. Right, right. Especially near existing cover, right? So if there's a, a slough in the middle of a field and instead of plowing right up to the cattails, you no-till around there, you know, we talk about, you know, predation, especially of nesting birds. If all there is a small pocket to cover, a raccoon or a skunk doesn't have to hunt very hard to find nests, you know, where if you have more of that cover, that's going to give the, the nesting birds more of an opportunity to, to have successful nesting. So yeah, even if they, even if you would just no-till certain Certain areas, um, you know, really, especially with going into soybeans, because soybeans are a low residue crop. You wouldn't even need any sort of specialty equipment to no-till into that. It's, you could just go out there with your standard uh, standard planter, or even if you wanted to go out and, and plow it in the spring, do some spring tillage, the benefit has already been met by, by spring. So even if you we're dead set on tillage. You could still do that in the spring and also have the benefit of the no-till over the winter. Hey, Jeff, you mentioned that some of the resources that, that farmers have that they're at their disposal and most farmers may already know these, but where can they get mm-hmm. more information about some of these programs that might be out there? So, so there is the, uh, the, the USDA, which is called their arm of the conservation is called the natural resources conservation service. There's an NRCS office in every county of every state. Um, and then there's also a soil conservation district in, in North Dakota over in Minnesota called Soil and Water Conservation Districts. And that's a local subgovernmental entity, which is basically grassroots conservation on the ground. So I would suggest anybody that has any interest at all in, in, in learning more is go to your local 
Conservation Office, NRCS. That's awesome. This is Jeff Miller, Director of Cass County Soil Conservation District. Thanks for coming on Gone Outdoors. Thanks a lot. Hope you guys have a good one. Well, it is going to wrap things up for this weekend edition of Outdoors Live. Appreciate the podcast extra being made available by Scotty Brewer and Kyle Agri. Make sure you check out them Saturday mornings at 11 o'clock. And then also you can check out their podcast at kfgo.com. This has been the weekend edition of Outdoors Live on News Radio, the Mighty 790 KFGO and FM 104.7. Till next time, I'm Doug Lear reminding you, as always, keep your lines tight and your powder dry. Have a great one out there.